This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I'm Kim Liu Ng. I'm an attorney as well as entrepreneur and human rights advocate. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you for finally accepting to come on to the podcast. This has been, I feel like it's been like years in the making. Well, it has. I, I, I feel like you've had so many more important people to talk to. <laughs> that is not true. Oh, uh, kind well, what you do for the community, both within your legal work and the restaurant is phenomenal. And it's hard to know where to get started with um, stories like yours. Um, and what I've seen in the time that we've known each other um, is that you're a fighter and a champion of, of humans. So I was wondering if we can get a glimpse of a story or stories of what do you think shaped your vision of the world growing up? I think I was very much shaped by my refugee experience and what my parents um, went through um, and what I, I I saw them go through growing up as well as what happened to my family in Vietnam and how we escaped. All of those things still very much shape who I am. And I have to say, uh, those experiences are at the core of what drives me. And, and in everything that I do, whether it's personal or professional, um, it's incredible what the refugee experience um, can inspire. And it's such a hard thing for me to talk about sometimes because we all have such um, incredible stories. And then, you know, this also happens to be the work that I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's it's almost like I'm reinforcing my own trauma while helping to dissolve other uh, people's trauma and, and, and try to save lives. So it's it, it can be a little difficult to talk about on a personal level. Um, as you can see, uh, it's it's something I, I actually don't really get a lot of opportunity to reflect on what my work within the legal world and what my work within the, the, the community and, and, and how it it affects me personally, because I literally am just constantly working and const I'm just so focused on what I need to do rather than stop and, and kind of think about um, what it means and, and, and it, how it affects me in my own uh, experience. Um, but, I live my life as if I only have one shot at it. And, and, and it's true. We only have one shot at life. Um, I actually 
am driven by the fact that I'm actually not even supposed to be alive. I mean, there have been many moments in my life where I'm like, wait a second, I am, the fact that I'm still alive is actually quite incredible because my dad, when he was in Vietnam, he was very young when he was conscripted into the war. And he was like 16, 17 years old, very, very young. And he stepped on a landmine. Um, you 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 were in the military, right? Right, right. I was yeah, the- thank, thank you for your service, Ken. I've I've always wanted to 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 thank you for that. But when my dad was very young, he stepped on a landmine, and in that moment, you know, obviously, if you step on a landmine, you you, you think explodes and, and you pretty much die. <laughs> um, but the the landmine did not detonate; it was dead. So my dad survived that. And then when we fled Vietnam by boat, I was um, I was about a year and a half, two years old. My dad, my mom didn't want to go. She was afraid of dying. My grandmother didn't want to go. She was afraid of dying. My paternal, my maternal grandmother was afraid of, of dying at sea. My mother was afraid of dying at sea. And my dad said, well, I'm taking my mother and I'm taking my two girls um dead or alive <laughs> we're not wow. staying in vietnam and and so then my mom's like well you, you you can't just take my children i i'm gonna go with you so my mom my dad my sister myself my sister was only three months old a couple months old actually less less than three months old and my paternal grandmother who was very very fragile and um and we survived the boat, boat journey as harrowing as it was and, and and hearing the stories of what my dad and my mom had to sacrifice on the boat. Um, I think really nails it for me in terms of giving me a sense of purpose and what I need to do with this one shot that I have in my life. You got one shot. What are you going to do with it? And so this is what I've chosen. This is what I've chosen to do. It makes me think about the refugees that are coming out of the different conflicts in the world. And maybe throughout the the podcast with you, we can touch upon the harrowing, the darkness, the, the, the experience of refugees that are coming from all over the world um, at this point, um, because I, I can't stop and, and, I can't help but reflect on what's going on, you know, in the Middle East. So I don't, you know, if you're comfortable with discussing some of that, uh, a lot of immigration uh, complications that I want to talk to you about as we go through this uh, podcast, if that's okay with you. No, that's that's just fine. It's 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 my work, so I'm I'm happy to discuss it, and and I know that people are very nervous about talking about war and refugees. I feel people are afraid to share their opinions. Yeah. Especially now since the discourse, uh, the space for the discourse is so wrought with fear and not just not just fear, but there are a lot of bullies out there too. Lots of bullies. Yeah. And 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 I I feel that the discourse on this 
it was once a little bit more black and white, right? It was like good versus evil, that kind of thing. And, and, and now I think the lines are really blurred. Um, the lines are really blurred and it's, these are very difficult to, to, things to talk about, but I, I, I think at least what I can do though, is put, um, is provide a legal perspective on what refugee law is, uh, what it stands for, what it means, at least in the U.S. legal context, right? So um, that that I think could at least provide some kind of constructive and objective conversation. But these conversations are never objective; they can never be objective. Right, right. There's always going to be underlying biases. There's always going to be um, there, there. There's always going to be a lot of emotions attached to this this kind of conversation. Yeah. And especially from where we come from, our vantage point is being refugees. Um, and and wherever we are on the political spectrum, it's complicated, but it is certainly biased. Absolutely. I, I'm, I've been a U.S. citizen for almost my whole life, but I think first and foremost, a critical part of my identity is that I am a refugee from Vietnam to yeah. this very day. And yeah. until I die, I will be a refugee from Vietnam. So you decide to go to law school. What initially did you think that you would be practicing? Well, you know, I, I have to to be very candid. Becoming a lawyer was not my dream. <laughs> I was interested, very much interested in becoming a diplomat. Um, my dream is still to become, you know, a cultural attache, which is pretty much plan parties, host parties, get people together, get people to like each other. Uh, but this was actually my dad's dream, my dad's dream. And why was it my dad's dream? Well, first of all, his favorite book is The Godfather. And he is a huge fan of Tom Hagen. And he always wanted me to become that like the conciliary, right? To, 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 to become educated, to become a lawyer, because when you're a lawyer, you can do anything you want. Well, at least that's what he thought. You can do anything you want and, um, and, and have power because Vietnam, when we fled, um, had no rule of law. The citizenry had been stripped of a voice and, and, and any power whatsoever. Um, the little power, little voice that they, that they had, um, at the time. And my dad very much believed in the rule of law. And that was the reason why he brought us here. Uh, the rule of law is what makes the world go around. It is, it is what allows us to have a safe, um, a, a relatively safe, um, society, a society that allows us to function um, and 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 allow us opportunities to be enterprising. Um, all the things that my dad could do, he could no longer do. He had no freedom to do anything. He had no freedom to conduct business. He had no freedom to go to school. He had no freedom to do anything. And so in his mind, the law was of absolute, absolute, <laughs> uh, importance. It was, it was absolutely paramount 
that we live in a country that had um, the rule of law because otherwise life really would not be worth living without liberty and 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 safety and, and security uh, which comes hand in hand with the rule of law I guess um, life was not worth living for him so it was rather you know I don't mean to sound so fatalistic but quite honestly I mean he was like I'd rather take my two kids and die at sea. Yeah. And, and you, That's so you the, I think that applies to most Vietnamese refugees who yeah. brought their kids over. Yeah. Yeah. And refugees now, modern refugees around the world um, have that same sentiment. They are driven by the same exact thing that drove my parents, your parents. Um, and, and, you know, people are still fleeing by boat. Yeah. People are still fleeing by boat. Boats are being capsized. Boats with migrants and refugees are being capsized, and very little is is being done to to, to help them as as well. And 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 it it is something that that's very triggering for me when I read about it, when I hear about it, when I see it on TV. It's very triggering for me because I think about what would have happened if the British Navy had not pulled the boat that my family was on into the harbor. Um, wouldn't be here. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be here, and um, I would not be the person that I am today. I, my restaurant wouldn't exist. My legal practice wouldn't exist. So many things, um, so many things would not have occurred. What, what, in your history of being a lawyer brought you to the direction of the work that you do? Well, it's interesting um, because initially I started as a litigator. I started as a litigator when I was in law school. I was offered a position. I, I was a summer associate at a big firm and, and I was given an offer in my third year of school, law school, and my parents were so happy. <laughs> it was like the ultimate American dream. I was really young. I was in like my early 20s and I got this incredible offer to make a lot of money. Uh, and I I didn't really see a way around it. I I had to take it because I'm the oldest of five. My parents were working around the clock still to support the family. And I was committed to lifting my family out of poverty. And so I, I took the job. Um, I, I took the job believing that in the process of lifting my family out of poverty, I would be able to find fulfillment uh, as a lawyer but that was the complete opposite mm, <laughs> because because um i i was i was i was quite unhappy um my experience was a very difficult one being a young vietnamese american woman in a very large very white very male dominated um field um, it, it was really difficult and it was really lonely. 
I felt like I had no one to protect me. I, <laughs> um, I, I did have some allies, but they weren't in a position to really protect me from some of the really tough things that were happening. And, and I was so attracted to public service while I was working um, in the big law firm, having volunteered to represent a child victim of human trafficking from China. I had started doing human trafficking work when I was in law school, actually. Um, I helped a group of Vietnamese and Chinese individuals who had been trafficked into Saipan, into Saipan. And I worked with an attorney and I to, to help both the Chinese and the Vietnamese, because I do my legal work in, in Vietnamese and Chinese, and I was able to help uh, a large group of them uh, receive what is called a T visa, a human trafficking visa. And we were among the first in the country to get the T visa because the legislation had just passed. Mm. So it was it was exciting, and I became addicted to this kind of work. I said, oh, this is the work that I need to do. This is the work that I want to do. But the, the pressure of lifting my family out of poverty and taking care of my parents and my siblings and my grandmother, it, it just was so overwhelming for me. I just didn't see another way. And, and then the timing of everything was very bizarre because at that point, after about a year before, yeah, after about a year, I, I, I was no longer, I had to remove myself from that situation. And, um, I had been given offers at other big firms. Um, and I, I didn't take them because I was just like, I'm not going to go from one firm to another and, and do this corporate litigation stuff and, and, and just, um, be unhappy. Um, but at that point, my dad had fallen very ill. And this was a time of transition for me. I, I was thinking about moving back to Asia because um, I had lived and studied there before uh, to pursue international legal work. And and I, 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 almost, I almost left, but then something held me back. And, and that was actually my dad. He, I took him in for like a routine colonoscopy and it turned out he had advanced, um, he had advanced pancreatic cancer mm. and it was really, really difficult. Cause I, at that point I was like, I had to quit my job. I quit everything. I quit my life. I quit my job. I, I, I quit everything to take care of my dad. Um, and 10 months later, he, he passed away. But but the day before he passed, um, literally the day before he passed, he looked me in my eyes and he said, you know, I think I've been really, really hard on you. <laughs> I mean, it was the most extraordinary thing that came out of my dad's mouth. He's like, I think, I think I've been too hard on you. I think I've put so much pressure on all these pressure on you all these years because I was afraid that you would not know how to make a living for yourself in this country. 
And I realize now that you're smart and you're savvy and that no matter what you choose to do, you will be able to make a living. So if you want to help people, go to go ahead and help people wow. because he knew he knew how dedicated I was uh, to to helping the community and 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 how I'd always volunteered. And he gave me his blessing, and with his blessing, uh, that was when I shifted and went to work in the immigration and human rights arena, um, working in U.S. detention centers. Um, and and I was I was funded by the UN on a very special project at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, and I was working inside federal detention centers, and I was screaming. Um, there were days where I'd come home and scream because of what I saw and what I experienced. Um, what what can we can you get into that a little bit? What um, and I mean you can keep it general, but what were the things that made you come home and scream about? Well, I had absolutely no idea that such places existed to begin with. Perhaps even though we had lived in poverty, even though I was raised in poverty, um, I was still quite sheltered by my parents. They did everything they could to protect us and make sure we were safe and make sure that we were going to school. And I had no idea such places existed. I had no idea that the immigration system was this way. When I went in, and it, this was Terminal Island in San Pedro, among all of the the um the containers right so hiding amidst all the thousands and hundreds of thousands of containers at the LA port is this little is this little detention center it's a high security detention center and it's it, it's quite scary to drive up to actually so you drive up and then you know you kind of walk it's like a 10 minute walk to the facility and, and you go in and I was, I wasn't scared, but I did get scared when there were lockdowns, when there were fights breaking out among the detainees. Um, these were immigrant detainees who were waiting either deportation or they were filing their immigration cases before immigration judges. And I saw, I would walk by pods. I, I went in there to give um, legal rights presentations. I would educate and, 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 and tell the detainees what their legal rights are. Depending on the case, I would take it on myself and do legal representation. I saw how many people were crammed into a pod, which is where they, they lived. It was like, it was like stacks of three bunks. And then in between the bunks, there were, there were these cots in between. Um, I mean, people died in there. Uh, the things that I was, the things that I was, I was told a lot of things. I gained the trust of the security guards. I gained the trust of the detainees. The things that they told me were unimaginable, given 
that I was a lawyer in America where I thought the rule of law was was uh basic rights what yeah you know where the rule of law meant something and what people were being fed uh what people were deprived of i i had client i had a client who had cancer and was deprived of medical care couldn't speak english had to fight i had to file a civil rights complaint I mean, it, it it was it was beyond my imagination, and it tore me down. It, it it tore me down because I thought that those were the very conditions that made my family flee Vietnam. Wow! And now I was a lawyer functioning within a system in which basic rights were not being upheld. And the country had no idea that this was happening. Um, So it was an isolating experience. It was a lonely experience, but it, it compelled me to strive and work even harder. So I worked around the clock. I drove hours to detention centers. I I, I was trying to help the folks who spoke Vietnamese or Chinese, the languages that were in um, my capacity because there had been people who had been detained for years. They just wanted to go home. And so I think I was able to make a very, very small difference, at least with those individuals. I met so many people who had been tortured, who had been persecuted um, for many reasons, for political reasons, for religious reasons, um, because they were transgender. I mean, it was it was it was unbelievable who I was meeting, who I was serving. Um, people that you never hear about in society. At that time, I thought it was America's biggest, darkest secret with just a handful of attorneys in the country going into detention centers at the time. So wait, I, I um, am wondering, has things gotten better in the world of detention centers here in the U.S.? Well, you know, it's been a while since I've worked inside a detention center, but... I continue to read the reports, uh, Physicians for Human Rights, other human rights groups have issued reports. In fact, there were audits that were done at various detention centers um, throughout the country, including here in Southern California. In addition, over the years, I've continued to represent people in detention and One of the things that I talk about with my client is not just their claim, right? What kind of relief will allow them to remain in the United States, okay? Be released from detention, remain in the United States, um, obtain legal status, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I talk about with all of my detained clients is how are you being treated? Are you being fed? 
I mean, it's incredible. I have to ask these questions. Yeah. Are you being fed? Are you being given medication? Are you, um, you know, very, very basic things. Um, I, I've had clients who've, and, and you know, because of the incredible amount of advocacy there, and, and I, I think over time, the U.S. government has tried to be a little bit more transparent. Um, I think things have gotten maybe slightly better, but I mean, they're, uh, you know, but you hear about these, these hunger strikes you hear about, I, I mean, it's been a while since I last heard of a hunger strike, but, um, but, but you hear about these detention centers on the border of the U S and Mexico, and you hear about the horrific nature of the conditions. But I think as a U.S. citizen, for me, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but I'm actually kind of callous every time I read that. But now that I'm hearing it from you, from you, I don't think that the problem is really has been alleviated. I think it still continues. And my question is, do you think that's a function of just government, big government, you know, big uh, movements to 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 do something about the problem of detaining um, people coming in uh, without um, any sort of um, God? This gets the wording gets very tricky, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to. But is it an issue of of just being unorganized as a big uh, unit, or is it some malicious sort of cultural? thing that we Americans possess. Well, how do I answer that question without, let's put it this way. The government is very, very big. The government is massive. The government at initially when I was working in the detention centers and this, this was like back in the mid this is back in like um, the mid aughts to the late, you know, to up to 2010. Um, the U.S. government actually contracted with state governments and local governments to run the detention centers. However, over time, what's happened is that they have contracted to private corporations mm. like Geo, et cetera, et cetera. So private corporations basically took over the detention business and it's a business. Okay. These corporations are in the business of detaining immigrants, feeding them, housing them, et cetera, et cetera. These corporations are not in the business of upholding their basic human rights and constitutional rights. Okay. And if you notice, if, if you just kind of go on Google and Google where these detention centers are, you will find that they are in the most remote areas. Okay. Why are they in the most remote areas? Well, you know, land is pretty cheap. Land is cheaper. So these detention centers, you know, these corporations, they, they open up these detention centers in the middle of nowhere. They hire a lot of people from the local area right because you need guards you need cooks you need medical personnel etc and you know a lot of people actually run for office saying hey i'm going to bring this detention center here right and so and and what does it do it brings tax dollars 
It brings tax dollars. It brings jobs. There are a lot of economic benefits that come to rural areas that contain detention centers. I'm not going to deny that. I, I, I understand what those benefits are. I understand what it does for the local economy. Um, but at what cost? At what expense? And that is the question that I have actually with our immigration system as a whole. Because there are a lot of things happening on the immigration front that keep families divided, that keep people in detention, that people that 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 you know that don't allow those who are eligible to, 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 to apply for certain immigration belief to which they are entitled. There, there's a lot going on. And, 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 you know, with the various refugee crises, I mean, you think, you know, think Ukraine, think Afghanistan, even before that, for that. And, and, and now, um, you know, obviously, I don't know how the refugees of Gaza are ever going to get here if they're ever able to get here, which is probably not going to be the case, but, um, it's one refugee crisis after another that's yeah. really um, caused us to get stuck in a situation where I, I think from top to bottom, I think people are confused. I think people are lost. We're not necessarily sure on how to manage this and 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 how to do it. Uh, I, I I want to know um, from your, opinion is the immigration numbers um the, the the limitation on bringing people into the united states is this more of a uh we don't have enough infrastructure to support people coming in from you from from around the world or is it more of like let's keep our society status quo pure we want to maintain what it feels like to be America in the fifties. And we want to kind of control the cultural kind of shifts. Is it more that, or is it really, um, you know, a dollars and cents, a practical money issue of bringing all these people in and we have to spend, you know, is it a cultural thing where we want to maintain the, the entire country? You know, is it more that we want to maintain this cultural status quo or is it more of a, of dollars and cents issue of bringing in and not being able to infrastructurally support? Well, I feel that that question can be answered by understanding actually how our country um, decides how many immigrants come uh, how we there, there's an entire system that determines how many refugees come in a year. There are caps to immigration that um, are decided upon on an annual basis. Does okay. the calculus make sense? Does these calculations on how many and how many do, are, is there sense to it? So, so the arm 
of the government that that handles refugee resettlement from around the world is it's called the ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Okay, so what the ORR does is that depending on what the refugee caps are, their job is to bring those immigrant, bring those refugees here and then resettle them throughout the country. And then what happens is that the ORR contracts with nonprofit organ organizations called voluntary agencies that have traditionally assisted refugees, right? I mean, when my family came here, Catholic, Catholic charities, charities, Catholic charities showed up and helped us rent our first apartment, gave us a check, gave us a big fruit basket, right? All of those things. So that's what the voluntary organizations do. And so the ORR contracts with these organizations and what they do every year is they do an assessment. Well, okay, is Los Angeles, you know, does Los Angeles have the proper amount of housing, um, jobs, social services? They, they, they make all of these assessments to determine where they want to send refugees because you can't just send them anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> I mean, when we came, the U.S. had a policy of resettling Vietnamese refugees, you know, in the American Midwest, because yeah. they said, they said, hey, listen, if we send, if we send the Lou family to, to Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, or, or, or Oklahoma, um, they'll learn English real fast. And they will, um, they, you know, they'll assimilate really fast, and they'll become Americans really fast. Yeah, but what do we do? We all jumped on the Greyhound and, you know, we all jumped on the Greyhound and we all went looking for each other. I mean, you know what I mean? So it's 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 like, it's like yes, there are systems in place to, to resettle, but, you know, obviously immigrants are going to be drawn to cities. They're going to be drawn to places that um, in in which they can seek out people of their own culture, seek out people of their own language, seek out people. Of, I mean, so you know, I think they kind of figured that out. Okay, just because we send someone somewhere, which is why you have all of these, which is why there's so many Vietnamese in Orange County, in San Jose, uh, Massachusetts. If you look at the, if you look at the Khmer community, if you look at the Hmong community, if you look at the various ethnic groups and where we have flourished, well, those are traditionally the areas where people were sent and then everyone just like, well, I don't want to live in Louisville, Kentucky anymore, like my family. So, you know, my dad packed us into a Greyhound and we discovered America on the Greyhound and, and, and came to Los Angeles. Um, and that's, that's where we've been since. So the U S has a legal infrastructure and systems in place. Um, and, and each year they decide on the numbers. Now, What's really important uh, to point out is that when Trump was president, and this is where I get really confused about, and I know a lot of people are going to hate me for this, and a lot of people are going to criticize me for this, but I think it's extremely important to know that Donald Trump single-handedly cut refugee admissions to almost zero wow. when he was president. So there are a lot of people in in our community who supported Donald Trump, even though we're also refugees. But they support that zero number that Donald do Trump. They, do they, they do, do they really? Because look, it's like saying 
what if, what if it's, it's like saying, okay, no more Vietnamese refugees allowed into the country. What would you say to that? Vietnamese people, and I'm going to get slack for this too. I think the ones that have probably made it are in support of that sort of no immigration from anywhere because it's one of those things. It's like human nature. We, I made it. I'm going to close the door right behind me and not bring anybody else in. That confuses the heck out of me. You know, I actually wrote a Vietnamese article. I actually wrote it in English first and and some of my friends, you know, there were some very, very, very kind people who translated into Vietnamese because I could not believe, I just could not believe how much support there was for Trump during the election and during his administration. I was so I, I was I was I was in such disbelief. I actually was like, I need to write something to explain or help sort of distill what has actually happened, right? Trying to communicate facts about what actually happened. Um I I mean but, I don't know how many people read it. I mean, it was published in like a Vietnamese paper. I mean, I don't know how many how many Vietnamese people actually read it, but the thing is. It 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 confounds me. It confounds me because we are refugees. We are refugees, and I will never forget that. I will never forget where I came from. But to me, I think many people have. Yeah, I I I think they. <laughs> I mean, I have family members who are pro no immigration. Let's not bring anybody in. We've already made it here. Let's close the door behind us. So whatever. Did they come in as refugees? Say it again. Did they come in as refugees? Oh, yeah, for sure. T- totally. I, and I don't think this is an isolated my family issue. This is mm-hmm. this is huge. Um, you know, we've already we made it. it. We had a tough journey. Let's not bring anybody else in here. This is it. And th- that's why I want to have this conversa- conversation with you because it to me sometimes seems that politics is really about I want this for me and my family. Fuck other people. I'm, I don't care about other people. And that seems to be sort of the consensus sometimes about policies that you vote one way or the other based on the welfare of your family. And you don't care about the heritage of your refugee uh, history. You just don't, it's not, it's not a thing anymore. It's like, we've already made it. We're, we're safe. We're going to close the door and we're going to vote for the guy who slams that door. And it is a normal thing. That absolutely. confounds me. I almost feel like when we when we were young and we all came over together, I mean, we all had to help each other out. I mean, I remember my mom making egg rolls and bao, right? You know, the, the baos. I mean, she would make so many and, and like she would give it to her our neighbors and we we shared in our resources uh because there weren't very many resources for us. And I just remember that kind of camaraderie. I just remember that kind of love that we shared with our neighbors, right? All the kids played together. We all ate at each other's homes. And and that to me, 
that that to me is what lifts me that uplifts me and that is that is kind of the 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 framework with which i operate because i'm always inviting people over my house to eat and uh, you know what i mean oh you folks to stay sure and growing up even though we lived in a tiny little apartment at echo park my parents welcomed our friends and and relatives from vietnam who came over as refugees to live and literally families of like six, seven people slept on our dining, slept in our living room. And we all shared like 11 people shared one bathroom. I mean, this is the kind of love and, and, and camaraderie that helped us make it whatever that means, right? If make it means having a nice house in Irvine, driving a Mercedes, <laughs> okay, fine but where do you eat right who are your friends <laughs> you know you eat in vietnamese restaurants you know you're you're you're, you're you continue to have friends i mean you don't exist and you cannot exist on your own without your community but and it's hard so for, but it's hard for vietnamese people to see that about the mexicans that are coming in about the others the syrians the all of these other refugee communities, the, Afghan, the Afghanistan community, it's hard for Vietnamese people to see that they are just another chapter of humanity. It's very difficult for, for us to see that as a community. Well, I think there are a lot of us in the community that support other refugee groups. I've spoken, to, I've spoken to a lot of Vietnamese American attorneys, I've spoken to Vietnamese American politicians, um, business people. I think a lot of us are very supportive. And then there's this just group of people who are, are very, very pro-Trump, very anti-immigrants, anti-refugees. And I'm like, who people are? How did you come here? Remind yourself for one moment when you were hungry when you were afraid for your life. Yeah. Right. Um, I think there's a tendency to have some amnesia. Um, there's a certain level of amnesia within our community that I feel has affected the way we feel and think about other immigrants. And I feel that if they were to actually meet and work with those refugee and immigrant communities, they would actually feel something very different. This episode is brought to you by Somkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Somkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Somkai Gin. Somkai Gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Somkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Somkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Somkai is a community effort of people 
who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. You know, when I attend events with the Asian Americans Advancing Justice uh, here in Southern California, I see you only sort of like the tip of the iceberg. Literally, you just see the tip of the iceberg. You're like, okay, well, we see the physical role that you play in the event or a gala, like these events, but sitting to have a conversation and drilling down to the, the spirit, it's almost spiritual to experience how you feel about the refugee experiences is mind blowing. And we haven't even gotten to the restaurant work that you've done and, and all of that, but how do we change the perspective of our fellow Vietnamese refugees that are just a few years older than us, really. Um, you can't really say it's our parents' generation anymore because a lot of them have passed on, but it's really a lot of them in their 60s and 70s that are having and holding on to this sort of, um, it's a very selfish perspective. Look, I have a confession to make. My dad was a Reagan Republican before he died. <laughs> And I want to say that a lot of our Vietnamese American elders, a lot of maybe perhaps the, the group who, who are just a bit older than us, maybe they belong to that school. And that makes perfect sense because Reagan opened his arms to us. Yeah. Okay. The Republican Party opened their arms to us. And in fact, it was the Repu Republican Party was one of the driving forces of the, you know, of, of welcoming refugees, right? We had a Republican government. And during that Republican government, the Refugee Act of 1980 was passed. Okay. So a lot of wonderful things happened uh, for refugees when the Republicans were in power. Okay. We are no longer in the era yeah. of Repu of Reagan Republicanism. What, and, 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 you know, I, I don't want to get political because, because I think politicizing things divides us. I think what we really have to drill into people is it's, 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 it's not a matter of, it's, it's not politics. Think about it. It, it, it to me, it's not necessarily about politics. It's about who we are, what our beliefs are, what our values are, and where we came from. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I wish, I, I wish, I, I, I can look into the eye of a Trump's, a Vietnamese Trump supporter, and, and say that. What do you believe in? Because if you believe in, you know everything that Trump believes in, well, that means you're embracing racism. That means you're embracing inequality. That means you are. But I can tell you from experience that some <laughs> of them are gladly em embracing racism and inequality, gladly, happily doing so. And so the job of just being friendly to my uncles or to my loved ones that are blood relatives has been a journey. Um, and for me, uh, it's, it's a, it's a tricky place to navigate because on, on one end you understand 
what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. It it's important that we do not lose the humanity of where we are today as as, ref, as refugees. But at the same time, there's this whole coalition of people that are Vietnamese Americans that truly believe that the um, that we, you know, we've come here and we're gonna close the door behind us and and that's 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 that. And listen, we. In 2022, there are 1.3 million Vietnamese living in America. There's a lot of us. And that means that we are going to have a lot of very different opinions. And, and, and that's okay. But, but, even though I respect the views of others, and I, and I respect that, you know, I may not share the same views and the same values as, as others. I think there's a fundamental baseline. There's a fundamental baseline, right, of humanity, as you're saying, dignity. My life is committed to lifting the lives of Vietnamese people, the lives of immigrants, the lives of refugees, and... If you want to hate me for that, it's fine. Fine. I'm not going to lose sleep over that. Okay. There is a fundamental baseline. And I don't know what attracts people to extremist views. I I, I don't. When I think of extremism, <laughs> you know, in America, I, I it, it, it terrifies me because if you look at what extremism caused in Germany, yeah. it gave them Hitler. Um, it, it, extremism, I think, is an inability to accept nuances. It's just, and that's how you end up on either ends. And I think sometimes our Vietnamese community is unable to process the nuances of what goes on in the details of policy. Unable or unwilling? Both. Both. And I'm only speaking from my own experience with my close family and blood relatives. Yeah. You know, I'm not speaking for the entire Vietnamese community. But, yeah. you know, we we actually have um, other things to talk about because I <laughs> am itching to get into this uh, world of your restaurant work and where it began and your husband and the direction that you both have taken, why you are so um, involved in, in the restaurant world, even though you're having this you know heavy burden to live with the legal work. Well, I married into the restaurant business. Um, I married into the restaurant business. Uh, my husband is Chef Brian Ng. And I'm very proud to say that he is um, a James Beard nominated chef. And I'm very proud to say that my restaurant, Casilla, is a James Beard nominated restaurant and has won um, different types of awards. And, and, and I'm very, very proud of that. And I'm, I'm not... I, I'm I'm not necessarily ashamed to say that out loud. I know that Asians are not very good at sort of promoting 
our achievements, right? Because of humility and, and, um, but I will, I will say I am extremely, extremely proud and, and I got into the restaurant business because I married into it and because I love my husband. Hmm. Um, I love my husband more than anything. (laughs) I am his partner. Uh, and when I agreed to marry him, I agreed to be his partner in everything. So uh, the the restaurant, uh, notwithstanding. And I, I remember when we first opened, we when we opened our first restaurant, it was called the Spice Table, and it was I a little. Studio. I've been there <laughs> twice. Yeah, when it was Spice Table. Yeah. Thank you. It was a great restaurant. Thank you. Thank you. It's very kind. Uh Brad and I, when we opened that, we opened it at the height of the recession. And he and I, we together raised money, did presentations, raised money. I mean, I was working full time as a lawyer at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, working in detention centers. And um, so I'd work a full day of law. And then, you know, I, I rushed down to little Tokyo and go into the bathroom and slap a coat of makeup on my face and change my clothes and posts and busts and, and um, do everything that was required. And we, we, we did this for a couple of years and we were really, really lucky because um, Jonathan Gold, rest in peace. Um, we miss you. Jonathan Gold was our greatest champion. And, and because of Jonathan Gold, uh, Bryant gained national recognition and, you know, he was Wine's best new chef. And I mean, it was, and it opened all kinds of doors and, yeah. and possibilities for us. And then of course we had to shut down the spice table because literally a train ran through it. I mean, I am a proponent of public transportation. Um, I've used public transportation my whole life. Um, when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I, I rode the RTD everywhere. And then when it became the MTA, I rode it everywhere. Um, but I got to tell you, you know, when the MTA wants to tear down your home, it's like, it's I'm in a really, domain, right? Oh yeah. 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 Cause I literally walked uh, past it last, uh, last week for Jeff Yang's uh, uh, book release. And I was like, Oh, this is where the spice table used to be. There's a a, a train station. Regional right center there. station is is there now. Right and across the street from the Japanese American Museum, right? Yeah. Right behind the old staples or office depot, whatever. Yeah, you know, we had three good years there. And and I think I think it was meant to be. I, you know, it was meant to launch Bryant really onto the yeah. national stage. Um and at that time. There were not, there were not many Asian American chefs on the national stage or or had national recognition. Um, at that time, it was like the height of like the food network, food celebrity dumb phenomenon. And and it's very, it's a very white space, a very, very white space. Um there were a number of chefs that were nationally known, of course, the beloved, you know, Martin Yan, right. Who, who, you know, we've been watching since we were kids and, 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 and of course, Charles Fan, and, you know, but. Not many. No. And, and not just that, but Bryant 
Bryant was was a professional. He 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 had he worked in the biotech industry and he switched careers. Um he had gone to UCLA and if you looked at a lot of the well-known chefs at the time, a lot of the chefs didn't necessarily, you know, they were in the business from when they were teenagers. Uh, they grew up in the business, right? I mean, Bryant's, Bryant's family had Chinese restaurants and, 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 and growing up. And so he'd help out in the kitchen, but, but, you know, he went to college and, 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 and he, he studied the sciences. And, and so, and, and he was a career changer and so he was representing this brand new sort of school of, of, of chefs. Um, and, and I think that it really paved the way for a lot of folks who wanted to cook the food of our heritage, right? Because, you know, Brian is... He's he's trained in, in in classical French cooking from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, and he worked for for restaurant Danielle and, and Campanile and and Roland Passat. But it was like when we got married, we said, no, 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 we're going to open a restaurant in which we're going to celebrate our heritage. And because of his classical training, he was able to apply the classical right. techniques to the food of our heritage, which was really very much a novel thing. A very brand new thing and and i am so I, I just feel so i it always brings such a big smile to my face when i think about um right time right place i i know I, you know I, 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 that experience and not just that but the foundation it really laid for a lot of young yeah. chefs um, especially Asian American chefs who traditionally may not have had role models or, 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 or whatnot. And, you know, our kitchen at Casilla is very much a teaching kitchen. And, um, and, you know, we've, we've had people come from Casilla who are doing really amazing things now. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I just continue to be really impressed by, by, kind of what we started, you yeah. know, or, or help start or, or, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to take all the credit, but, but I, I'd like to say that we played a huge part in that. You, you know? know, I, uh, I, I, when I sit at Casilla and I think about the juxtaposition and I've, I've always thought this every time I've sat inside the restaurant, the juxtaposition of your life, doing the work within the communities that are very underprivileged, and being in the world of the very privileged, right? It's it's two very different worlds. And I sit there and I think about you and I, I'm like, what does that feel like to have a foot inside these dingy cells? And I know, and I mean that figuratively as well. You you have a foot inside the the world of the very underprivileged, and then you're sitting at tables where there's celebrities inside the Santa Monica establishment. What goes on through sort of your mind when you think about these two extremes? Do you ever think about it? Sometimes reflect on it. I I, I do. And I don't, 
I don't find the two worlds to be mutually exclusive. And let me tell you why. We have something called LA Chefs for Human Rights. It's a human rights uh, fundraising platform that Brian and I started when we opened Casilla. And even though Casilla is a high-end restaurant and it costs a lot of money to eat there, um, what I find extremely heartening is that we have been able to use Casilla and the Casilla, the, the Casilla community, we've been able to rally that community to support nonprofit organizations in Los Angeles and beyond to do amazing things for our community. I mean, we've done what, we, you know, with seven dinners, we raised like 1.2, 1.3 million dollars. Incredible. You know, and our restaurant and each dinner was like 130, 140 people. So um, and we've only done, we, we've done like what, seven of these dinners and this last one that we did for Advancing Justice, um, it was to help them celebrate their 40th anniversary. And, and, and it was very personal for me because I actually was a law clerk there like 20 years ago. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, working at Advancing Justice, it was called the American, the Asia Pacific American Legal Center at the, at the time, but when I remember being a law clerk there, that was when I was just like, man, this is what I want to do with my life. I mean, I had, you know, there was one day where I had lunch with like Julie Sue, who, who is now, you know, our, our, our secretary of labor, uh, interim secretary of labor. Um, and just, I'm, you know, just, just being so, It's just being in such deep admiration because I knew how much they were making. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, my, 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 my salary from the big law firm mm. to my salary at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles within one year. I mean, it just, um, it's crazy. It's like opposite worlds opposite worlds and 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 I'm I, I'm I'm okay with that because for for me even though Casilla is a high-end restaurant I think the values that we convey from the place in which we stand are the same values that I convey as a community advocate, as a human rights advocate. The values that we have at Casilla are reflected as such. We give everyone health care. We pay everyone above, you know, either at or above whatever the Santa Monica um, um, uh, minimum wage is. And when we had to shut down, you know, when restaurants had to shut down because of COVID, we did not fire our entire staff. We furloughed everyone so that everyone could continue to receive medical insurance so that if they got sick, they could go see a doctor. Those values are very much values that we live with, that we embrace. 
And I think that support for Cassia over the years and the continued support of Cassia is because of those values. And I think the people who eat there know our values. Um, I'm sure they've, you know, in their research before they eat at our restaurant, I'm sure they read a little bit about it. And, and what's important to me is not just serving good food, but operating a business that takes care of its people um, to make sure that our people are healthy, that our people can take care of their families. And I, I just don't see any other way of running a business. I, I just don't see another way of operating. I, I, I don't. They seem very aligned. Uh, and I like the idea that the patrons that go to Casilla are able to really support the vision of, of the work of, of advancing justice um, in many ways. I, I want to use these last few minutes to talk about something I brought up in the beginning of the podcast. Um, it's a very difficult place right now to I've been told not to talk about this, so I don't know how to talk about it, but I want to bring it up. I want to bring the topic up. Um, and I've been advised not to talk about this because it's it's offensive to everybody, uh, the war in in you know in Gaza. We don't need to get into perspectives. What I do want to try to kind of get at is when I see the images that are happening, whether it's in mainstream or it's coming from citizen uh, journalists, it is tearing me up and I need an outlet to talk about it, but I don't know how to approach the conversation. So I want to ask you, somebody that I, I really respect in this, you know, this, um, this part of my life, uh, how do we hold space for this conversation? Well, first of all, um, I want to acknowledge the tension that you're feeling. I want to acknowledge the fear that you have with respect to even broaching the subject. I think I mentioned earlier that our political environment is is fraught with all kinds of hazards right now, right? I mean, you can be canceled any minute. I mean, Viet Thanh Nguyen, right? His event was in New York was canceled and I'm just like, oh gosh. Um, I'm trying very hard not to drop to drop f bombs here. Um, the situation in the Middle East is something that I think about constantly. Something that bothers me very, very much: the attack, the kidnapping, the murder of ho civilian hostages, you know, your former military, you know the rules of engagement, okay? Um, does Israel have a right to defend itself? Yes. Yes. Is attacking, kidnapping, murdering innocent civilians, is, is that okay? No, absolutely not, absolutely not. 
at the same time is invading a sovereign place and killing thousands upon thousands of children and adults who are civilians and have nothing to do with Hamas. Is that right? No. No. And I know that no matter what I say, I will be criticized. Or what we don't say. Or what we don't say, because if you don't say it, then they assume you're taking a side. So if you say something, you're going to be accused of taking a side. If you omit saying something, then you will be assumed to be taking a side. So I think that if we were to apply some kind of moral benchmark here, I think that there needs to be fundamental agreement on what is morally right and what is morally wrong, but we all have different moral standards. What is moral to me may not be moral to to someone else. What is moral to the Hamas may not be moral to the Israelis, right? But I think very fundamentally in a war, civilians, innocent civilians should not be attacked, should not be killed. Look, in a war, there's going to be, there are going to be, there's there, there's going to be the killing of thousands of, of, of innocent people. We understand that. Okay. I learned from very, very early on, especially given our Vietnamese refugee legacies, that war is, and being a realist, war is horrific. Many people die in wars. You cannot protect a group of people at the expense of another group of people. People are just going to die. And so what I'm reading in the papers is extremely disturbing. When you know that half the half the population of, 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 of a geographic region is children, I am not denying Israel's right to defend its sovereign territory. But at the same time, I cannot defend the thousands of lives that have been lost and continue to be lost. When I hear of hospitals being bombed, when I hear refugee shelters being bombed, I, a refugee, I can't stomach that. I can't stomach that. And and people have said, oh, that's not part of your that's not part of your program, Ken. You shouldn't be talking about this stuff because it has nothing to do with you. No, this shit has everything to do with our heritage and what we've gone through and what we've learned as the children of refugees and what it feels like generations later. And feel like we are unable to talk about it within our own community, within my own good friends. They're like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Within my mentors, within the people that 
you know, because we live in a community that is, you know, it, it's polarizing. Um, and at the same time, how can we process all of this? I don't know. For me, it's almost guilt to to just not talk about it. I feel complicit not talking about it. And I'm not trying to create I'm not trying to create a conversation here because I want to create something to talk about. I am truly disturbed. And this is really the first time I've really brought this up because I didn't want to come on my podcast and talk to this with just about anybody. But um, yeah, it's confusing right now to, I want, I need to like unload this because I'm addicted to this news cycle right now because I'm confused. I'm, I'm horribly, uh, fixated on something that should not be happening almost. I'm not a policymaker. Okay. I'm not a policymaker. However, I am, I am a lawyer and I am a practitioner of, of, of the law and the laws that our U S government, um, you know, the, the laws that our country has embraced international law, the laws of engagement in war, international refugee law. In, I mean, if you look at all of the applicable international laws. They've been broken. <laughs> that, hmm. um, you know, I, I'm not there. I don't know what's happening on the ground. But if what I am seeing is true, if what is being reported is true, then is this, is this a legitimate war? It's a question. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, you know, yes. It's not a position. I, it's not a position. It's a question. It's not, it's a question. It, it, it's a question because, you know, I was born minutes away from the Malai massacre. Minutes. For those of us out there who know what the Malai Massacre is, if you don't, please look up Malai Massacre, Google Malai, M-Y-L-A-I Massacre, okay? Two words. Two words. When I went to the site of the Malai Massacre, which was minutes from where I was born, I, I experienced very strange sensations in my body. Very strange. I mean, my first reaction was I went to the back and I was like, sobbing uncontrollably. Like I, I just had to let it out. And there were pictures, I, I, um, pictures everywhere, um, pictures that you, you frequently don't see American media, uh, pictures that were taken by Vietnamese journalists. Um, there are still graves. It, it's it's like a, it's a museum now, right? That, that entire area is a, is a museum. And My question is, how the fuck did the Americans know who to kill? They don't. They don't. They just killed everybody. Indiscriminately. There's yes, they killed everybody on site. So my question to and and that that is a small glimpse of war there, right? That is a small glimpse of war. So that's what I think about when yeah, exactly. Do you, do you know what I mean? That is exactly how I feel. I'm like, wait a minute. Regardless of what side you were on in Vietnam, 
there was napalm being carpeted in Vietnam, all over the countryside. In fact, I'm having Kim Phuc, the napalm girl, uh, in, in studio next Friday. And I can't help myself to think about the same shit's going on 50 years later. This is a woman who was on the receiving end of this like indiscriminate carpet bombing of napalm in her. And, and I think there's hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people who lost their lives. Innocent. Listen, people are still losing their lives. My dad, I lost my dad when he was 50, right? When he had advanced four years later, my mother at the age of 54 passed of another rare form of pancreatic cancer. Wow. And who knows where that came from? Listen, both my parents, I am from, my dad was born in Da Nang and my mom was born in July and we we lived before we 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 left. We we lived in Guangai, right? And that entire middle section is where Americans dropped most of their chemical weapons. Shit. So I'm 46 years old. My dad got sick when he was 50 and he died 10 months later. My mom got sick four years later, and 10 months from the day of diagnosis, she died. Mm. So I don't have proof. I, I don't have evidence. However, it cannot be a coincidence. It cannot be a coincidence. Those are short, that's short lives. My parents are husband and wife. They have no genetic yeah. link. And so we are still experiencing the fallout of war even 50 years, nearly 50 years later. I am fearing for the children and the future of Palestine because just like in Vietnam and just like in Cambodia, an entire generation of youth is Go being on. wiped out. And I'm not saying whether Israel's war is legitimate or not. What Hamas did was extremely, extremely evil. Holding on to those hostages is extremely evil. Okay, they're trying to fight a war with civilians. All I know is that there are a lot of people dying. And isn't war supposed to be proportional? Is I mean, you were in the military. I mean, that's that's a that's a that's that's something that's that's always considered when you fight a war, right? When we attack or when we counterattack. Will that counterattack give us the results that we need that is proportionate to the attack on our soil? I don't have the answers. I think that if I were to apply a very humanistic value to this, and if we're just looking at the, the, the cost of human lives, then I then I would say I, I would definitely say that I, I I cannot support that. I I can't because I value every human life. And we live in a country where we value human lives. 
um, or I think we, we do. I'd, I'd like to believe that we value human lives. Um, sometimes it feels like we don't. I appreciate you um, allowing the conversation to go this far. Um, I want to really, no matter where anybody stands in their politics, whatever Viet Thanh Nguyen did or said or signed, the courage of wherever he comes from, I don't know what drove him to do and to act. But I think that incredible sense of belief in the right thing for him is something that um, I guess, put simply, we can all really learn from. Absolutely. A a absolutely. I... I'm trying to choose my words clearly, uh, uh, carefully here, because um, I know it's very sensitive, but... Um, just the, yeah, the just the sheer, just the decision to do it is, um, it's huge. I don't envy him. I mean, he's, he's in a position, his position of prominence is, is, you know, obviously something that is a source of pride for us. But it also puts him in a very precarious situation right. because anything he says, anything he does, I think it will be judged widely. And the question is, you know, where does he end up in 50 years in history? Are you on the right side of history or are you on the wrong side of history? That's I, right. And, and it's a basic question. Were you on the side of humanity or you're on the other side of humanity? It depends on what your beliefs or, and your yeah. values are. It depends on what your beliefs and values are. What is your moral compass? And I, Kim, this I, was I greatly admire Viet Thanh Nguyen and 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 I I thank you and admire you very much for going there. Um, because I think that free speech is something that we need to embrace and respect and honor, we cannot have and we cannot continue to be a democracy without without speech. Without speech, yeah. And it is extremely important for us to hear from folks like Viet Thanh Nguyen, who, whose job it is to write. Yeah, to and, communicate, and to, to speak. Yes, about uh, to write and think, and and what he has written on, and 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 what he has been rewarded for. I mean, those are the very things that we celebrate, and those are the very things for which he's being punished for. So you know, I I I can't support that. I I, I can't support that. Yeah, I I have him on in a few weeks, and um, I I hope that um, he's open to discuss discussing this kim thank you so much um again this is one of the hardest ones i've had in a this hard one of the hardest discussions i've had in a long time uh and and i think um i i appreciate you allowing me to to 
to be led into that conversation because I don't, I don't have the skills or the understanding, the complexity of what's going on. And I, I think very few of us dare to go there, but, but you, you allowed it. And um, I, I appreciate that very much. And, and, and I appreciate you for creating this space. This is the first time I've ever done a podcast. I mean, I've been interviewed for various things and I've spoken at various things, but I've never done a podcast before. And so this entire time, I feel like I've been speaking to you directly in a private conversation and I have no idea how my, how my comments will be perceived. Um, you know, I, I've been heavily criticized in the past for some of my views, but I am not afraid of standing behind my views and standing up for what I believe in. We have to stand up for something we believe in because that is all we've got. Without those beliefs, without those values, we are nothing. There is nothing to fight for. Nothing. And so... It's terrifying, though. You know, having this conversation is a terrifying act for me. And, you know, I talked to somebody um, who said, but think about who's made you feel terrified. Why do you feel terrified? Why do you feel you can't talk about it? Who's, who's telling you? Who's limiting you? Who are the powers that are restricting your brain from going here? The, the, very, the very structure of it you know, it's so hard. It's it's so hard. I, you know, I don't, I'm not taking sides. I, I don't want to take sides because I, you know, I have Jewish American friends that I love. And I believe that as a sovereign state, Israel has every right to, to protect itself to and stand up for itself. Yep. But that doesn't give it carte blanche. Do it does not it. have carte blanche to do whatever it wants. And so the only thing that I can possibly think of is, and what I'm so obsessed with is, how do you go after the bad guy, right, Hamas, while trying to preserve as many lives as you can? And I'm not a policymaker. I'm not in a position to make those decisions and I'm I I cannot even imagine what is going through the minds of the policymakers right now. I pray for the children and the people of Gaza who are innocent civilians. But I also and I and I pray for the family of the hostages, but I also pray for Jewish Americans who are being targeted for anti-Semitism. I almost feel like this fight has spilled into the general yeah, this 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 mess of a, like a food fight, right? You're just now yeah. fighting each other because you want to fight each other. I think so much is getting lost in the unleashing of the hate and the bigotry. So much is getting lost. Now people are just people are just generally angry. Oh. People are just generally like fuming. You know, some guy got killed in a protest. I mean, this, this, we are down an extremely dangerous path if we cannot have discourse. 
That's what I worry about. That's what I am obsessed about as well. We can't talk about this. It's like, I want, I want to root for all the good guys. I want, you know what I mean? I want to root for all the good guys. We know who the bad guys are. The trick is how do you go after the bad guy without sacrificing all these other lives? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And, and, and now th there are thousands and thousands of refugees who are hungry, who are sick, yeah. no water, no electricity. So, you know, and that no reminds me of our experience no. being on the boat, right? You're drifting at sea for two weeks. Where are you going to get fresh water once you run out of your initial supplies? People are, you know, being it's, on the boat, you were sick, you were hungry. It's 2023 and there's people who are fucked as a result of decision-making that they have nothing to do with. This is like government decision-making. Well, let's, let's, I'm not in a position to speak about that. I think that as an attorney who has fought for refugees, who is a refugee who has fought for refugees and who continues to be an immigration attorney and who continues to advocate for immigrants, um, I am completely heartbroken, crestfallen, and angry about, about what's happening there and, and about Ukrainian and Afghani refugees still. It's 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 um I don't know how to make sense of, of it right now. And I think I don't think many people are able to make sense of it. And I think it's going to take a really long time. Um, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of healing that's going to have to be done. And I don't even know where that begins because war continues. So. Kim, thank you so much. Um, we will continue this um, in real life. And I can't thank you enough for finally deciding to come on. And, you know, the the last portion of our discussion was a little bit um, tough, but um, this is the end. And, and hopefully we can um, just celebrate the ability to have had a conversation about what we wanted to talk about. Thanks, Ken. I, I'm very grateful for this space and, and thank you for having me on. Um, I, I've never spoken of these things uh, publicly and I don't know if I should have. <laughs> you know, my husband's going to listen to this and go, oh my God. Oh my God, you opened up a can of worms. Um, but I do think I do feel a sense of responsibility and I do think that it is important as leaders in our community to have conversations about this, whether people agree with you or not, we have to have conversations about this because the leaders of this country are of our country are very much embroiled in that conflict and, and, and the decisions that we make 
as a country are going to affect millions of people. So um, when people say, well, that has nothing to do with me. Well, actually it, it, it has everything, everything to, to do with us. Everything. With us. So, everything. Uh, you know, with the election coming next year, it's, it's everything to do with us. This is a very fraught time. Yeah. This is a very fraught time. So I, I mean, I quite honestly, I, I, I don't know. It's not about taking sides. People are forcing people to take sides and it's, it's not about taking sides. Um, and that's what's scary. Well, thanks That's again, Kim. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.